As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Welcome to this replay of Ask N.T. Write Anything, where we go back into the archives to bring you the best of the thought and theology of Tom Wright, answering questions submitted by you, the listener. You can find more episodes as well as many more resources for exploring faith at premierunbelievable.com, and registering there will unlock access through the newsletter to updates, free bonus videos, and ebooks. That's premierunbelievable.com. And now for today's replay of Ask N.T. Wright Anything. Well, Easter is nearly upon us, Tom. <laughs> uh, it's going to be, obviously, a day of great celebration. How... how do you generally celebrate Easter if you're not already preaching on the on the morning? <laughs> it, it varies enormously according to where, where I am. Yes. And each year seems to be different. But um, I love to be at an early morning celebration. Mm. And in a previous job where I was doing an Easter vigil uh, very early in the morning, starting in total darkness and reading the mm. great chunks of the Old Testament and then having the bonfire and the candles and the proclamation, Christos Anastasia, Christ is risen, and uh, everything, the whole place going wild. And then then having uh, great hymns and the Eucharist and processions. And it's as though something exuberant is happening at Easter. This mm. is about new creation. And if you don't do it exuberantly, then it's almost as though you don't really mean it. Oh, no. he's raised from the dead. Isn't that nice? Yeah. Um, whatever. So uh, it, for me, it really is about new creation bursting through after mm. God's victory over all the powers of evil. How about this for an opener, then? Uh, This is a good general question to start off with. Finn in Wigan says, in the simplest way possible, could you summarize your views on the resurrection? I'm studying Christianity at A-level, and you're one of the people we study. I really admire your work. (laughs) Thanks. Thanks, Finn. Well, enjoy your A-level. But uh, the first thing to grasp is that resurrection, the Greek word is anastasis, which means standing up. Resurrection in the ancient world was always about actual bodies, about people being physically alive, having been physically dead. It's not about dying and going to heaven in the sense of the soul escaping the body, leaving a body behind. They had other words for that, and resurrection isn't that word. So the early Christian claim is that Jesus of Nazareth, having been thoroughly dead, really was thoroughly alive again. Now, this meant the sense, made the sense that it meant within a Jewish world where the majority of Jews, not all at the time, believed in resurrection. But what that meant was that they were looking forward to a time, they called it the age to come, when God would raise all his people from the dead because God is the good creator who wants to put the world right. So resurrection is what you get when you have the goodness of creation and God as the judge in the sense of the one who wants to put everything right. So 
resurrection always assumes that people will die, then they will have a period of being dead, and they have different ways of describing that. Are you in a spiritual existence or an angelic existence or what? It's not clear. And then resurrection is not life after death. It's life after life after death. In other words, you die, there is a period of being maybe alive with God in some sense or other. They don't explain that. But then resurrection is a new life, uh, a second stage. So when we're talking about resurrection, we're talking about bodies and we're talking about a two-stage post-mortem reality. Unless, as the early Christians said, when Jesus comes back, then those who have not died will be transformed. Mm. So you still have to be transformed because it will be a new sort of body. It will still be a body that's very clear uh, don't be fooled by the translations that say in First Corinthians 15 that it'll be a spiritual body. The word spiritual there doesn't tell you what it's made of. It tells you what it's animated by. Mm. It's a new sort of physicality, what I and others have called transphysicality. But it's still, in our sense, physical because God loves bodies. He loves his creation. He wants to remake it. So that's what the early Christians are talking about. And many people haven't understood, in the churches and outside, haven't understood even what I've just said, and so mm-hmm. get very muddled as to mm-hmm. what, in fact, is being claimed at Easter. So why then do I and others believe that this really did happen to Jesus? It wasn't what was expected. They were expecting God to do it for everybody at the end of time, and suddenly this happened to one person in the middle of time. And that and various other things about it were so unexpected that you have to say, well, why would they say that? Because there were many other Jewish resistance movements, messianic movements, prophetic movements at the time. Josephus, the Jewish historian, talks about several of them through roughly 100 years either side of the time of Jesus. Routinely, the leaders of those movements were picked up and killed by the authorities. And if your leader of such a movement got the chop from the Romans, you didn't go around saying, oh, maybe God's raised him from the dead. You either gave up the movement if you were lucky enough still to be alive yourself, or you found yourself another leader. And we have evidence of an entire dynasty, a family, through two-thirds of the first century, who each time the would-be Messiah got killed, the next one steps up. Now, here's the thing. Who's the great leader of the church in Jerusalem for the generation after Jesus? It's Jesus' own brother, James. Mm. Great man of prayer, great teacher, great leader, highly respected. Nobody ever said that James was the Messiah. They should have done if Jesus had just died, mm. oh, well, we thought he was the Messiah, but the Romans killed him. So, oh, here's his brother, James. Maybe he's the Messiah. They always said he's the brother of the Messiah, Jesus. Even Josephus, the Jewish historian, says he's the brother of the so-called mm. Messiah. Mm. Um, and and th- those and many other arguments have convinced me and many others that historically speaking, it's the best possible explanation for why Christianity got going. And why the stories in the Gospels, which are very strange, those stories at the end, um, the way they're formed, the different details, we'll talk about some of that in a minute, I suspect, why they are what they are, is it looks as though, as Ed Sanders, who's a great New Testament scholar from this last generation, said, looks as though they're trying very hard to say something they really want to say, but for which they don't have very good language. I think that's exactly right. Mm. But at the heart of it all is this extraordinary belief that God has promised to renew creation. The Psalms say the sea and the mountains and the sheep and the trees will rejoice because Yahweh is coming to sort out the world. And the answer is 
he's done it now in advance. The resurrection body of Jesus is the beginning of new creation. And as a result of that, new creation has been launched, it will be completed, and we live between the one and the other. That's what Easter really is all about. Fantastic. Let's turn to Norway, from Wigan to <laughs> Norway. Um, and I, I will fail to pronounce this name correctly, so forgive me. Uh, I think it's Trivi, possibly. Okay. <laughs> um, I don't know if you want to have a, an attempt at that one, Tom. Um, but um, uh, Trig, Trigvi, I think, <laughs> says, What I find puzzling is why Jesus says that he'll rise after three days when it barely goes two. I don't accept the explanation that counting Friday you get three days since (laughs) Jesus says that as Jonah was three days and three nights inside the fish, (laughs) so the Son of Man will be. Some Bible scholars like David Pawson think there was a special Sabbath the year Jesus died. He didn't die on a Friday but on a Wednesday. I know this is a big bone of contention. Um, What does Professor Wright believe? Uh, I think it's highly unlikely that Jesus died on a Wednesday, not a Friday. But, um, you know, it's possible the Christian tradition might have got that wrong. But actually, there are several passages which say on the third day rather than after three days. Mm. And it it, it seems to be a bit confusing there. I I don't have an explanation Mm. for that saying about Jonah. Mm. um, But it it is very interesting that that sits there in the tradition, which does seem in some tension Mm. with uh, very early on the the, the Sabbath morning, you know, the first day of the week, etc. And particularly in John's gospel, it's rather important that it's on the Friday that Jesus Jesus dies because John makes a great play mm. of the, the numbers that this mm. is the sixth day of the week mm. um, behold the man and then they rest on the Sabbath day and then it's the, 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 the next day when the mm. women go to the tomb so there is a surface tension mm. but it seems to me that the quotation of the prophecy from of, of treating Jonah as, as, a, as, a, as a prophecy there um, is, is very typical of how prophecy works that mm. it's, it's not trying to be mathematically precise and it's so again and again in scripture you get that sort of surface tension but Mm. when you go underneath i think most people would say this is a standard jewish way of speaking um and that three days and three nights it's actually not a big deal it basically means on the third day i hope that's not trivializing the objection um but it seems to me that the problem is there in the text and like many things as i say it's like how often did the rooster crow on the night when peter was denying jesus Mm. um or the, the morning when he was doing it and the only way you can reconcile the four accounts in the Gospels is if the rooster actually crowed nine times, right. which is what yeah. none of the accounts say. Sure. So, but, you know, I don't lose any sleep about that. Yeah. Um, I think these are surface things mm. rather than the deeper meaning. Let's talk about some of the historical arguments that mm. you have mm. traditionally used for why the, the resurrection makes sense of the evidence. Um, and Grant in Wilson um, has asked this. It's, it's, he puts it rather straightforwardly. Uh, I suspect Grant himself may be something of a skeptic, but says, Tom, why are you still trotting out apologetics about women's testimony supporting the historicity of the resurrection accounts? The argument has been soundly debunked with evidence. And at this point adds a link to an article by Richard Carrier, who's a well-known skeptic, in fact, a Jesus mythicist. Um, I, I think someone you probably have bumped into the writings of before. Um, And I know you've had a chance to just briefly look at this article that's mentioned. Um, First of all, maybe sketch out the way you have seen as significant Mm -hmm. the fact of the women in the Mm -hmm. empty tomb Mm -hmm. uh, in that historical setting. 
and and then if you would sketch right. out what what right. you believe to be the the, the problems that Carrier right. has with yeah. it. Yeah, uh, I have to say I I have looked at one or two of Carrier's things. I hadn't looked at this one until you sent me these mm. questions, and I thought, oh, what, what's he on about this time? And he, um, you know, it's fair enough to poke and prod at the historical arguments. I would always be up for that. Uh, history really, really, really matters. And if he says that the texts don't mean what I say they mean, then I really want to know about that. I don't want to sweep that under the carpet in any way. Um, what I have tended to say as one of several reasons for supposing that the, sto- the resurrection stories in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are really early, mm. this is even though the Gospels were probably attaining their final form by the 60s or 70s or 80s, we really don't know that, but mm. let's assume that they mm. were, the resurrection stories themselves do not show all the signs you might expect of being from that period. They show the signs of being really early. One of that, the reasons is um, the absence of Old Testament exegesis there, whereas in the crucifixion story there's a lot of that. Another is the absence of the Christian future hope. Every, el- elsewhere in the Gospels it says Jesus is risen from the dead, therefore we will be raised mm. from the dead. The, the, the resurrection stories don't say that. They mm. say Jesus is risen from the dead. Therefore, oh my goodness, this was unexpected. Yes. Maybe he's the Messiah and, and we have a job to do. Um, mm. But then one of the other reasons is that in all four stories, especially in John, the women are front and center. And the problem with that is that in the ancient world, women were not regarded as credible witnesses um, for all sorts of reasons. And that's what Carrier is pushing back at. But in order to contextualize that, we need to contrast those stories in the Gospels with the official formula which Paul quotes in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says the Messiah died for our sins according to the Scriptures, was buried, was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and was seen by, and we say, well, Mary Magdalene, the other Mary, Joanna. No, no. Um, he gives us a list of the people who saw mm. They're all men. Mm. Uh, excuse me, this is written and it's summarizing a tradition in the early 50s, if mm. that's already the tradition which Paul says this is what we all preached, mm. then this is a tradition which has taken shape by the late 40s uh, at, at the earliest. Yeah. Now, if that was the early tradition, and this is this is the point that I'm making, which I think Carrier doesn't quite understand, then if you were writing up resurrection stories later and you wanted to beef up this tradition a bit, would you invent stories about women? Would you introduce them at Would that you stage? Introduce them at that stage. Mm. And historically, it is far, far more likely that they were in the story from the beginning, and that because of anxieties about how credible this would be, they got a bit airbrushed. They out. got airbrushed out of the right. tradition. And a passage that Carrier doesn't mention, as far as I can mm. see in that mm. article, maybe he's discuss- discussed it somewhere else, is that in the middle of the second century. There's a skeptic called Celsus who is opposing Christianity, and we know about him because the great church father called Origen mm. wrote against him, contra Celsum, mm. um, and Celsus says sneeringly, oh, it's all based on the testimony of mm. one hysterical woman, right. and uh, it's quite clear, and various people have pointed out that the language used there is not just hysterical in general. Hysterical is a word people used about women. Right. Um, but then the other things which Carrier goes for, which Grant here, I'm not sure whether Wilson is where he lives or his surname. Possibly, I can't. But, I but anyway, sure. Grant, hi, Grant. He entered it as, um, the, as yeah. the place. So. Okay, right, okay. <laughs> um, the, the, but anyway, Grant, uh, w- what Carrier does is to pick up three passages from the rabbis, which I had referred to. By the way, when I made this point in The Resurrection of the Son of God, mm. I gave it precisely two pages right. because it, the book was already 700 
of pages long. Um, you could have expanded it a lot more. Um, and there's been, since I wrote that book, which is 17 years ago now, there's been a lot of work done on Jewish law courts and mm. so on. And it appears that uh, particularly later on in the rabbinic period, women could right. be admissible um, for, for, for giving evidence. But there's, there's, one, there's one passage where it's, it's in, the, the technical term is in the Mishnah, which is um, roughly 200 AD, and in the Mishnah tractate called Rosh Hashanah, the, 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 the New Year's Day, um, uh, one eight, uh, Carrier agrees that for many people, as evidenced by that passage, he says a woman's judgment was inherently questionable, but not her honesty. And I want to say, but that's exactly the point. It mm. was her judgment that would make people say, um, no, we mustn't do that. So he's, uh, Carrier is implying that I'm saying um, that a woman's honesty was in doubt. And I'm saying, no, no, it's just that people constantly said you can't trust women and the passage which he he does quote and discuss but which seems to be the direct disproof of what he carrier says when he says that there is no such tradition about women's testimony not being acceptable is from josephus josephus is writing just after paul around the same time as most people think the gospels are being written and in antiquities book four when he's um, describing the legal processes in Deuteronomy, he says three things very clearly. First, the testimony of one person isn't valid. You must have two or three witnesses. Second, women are not acceptable witnesses in a law court, um, and he gives a reason. And then thirdly, slaves are not acceptable mm -hmm. in a law court because they may be afraid or they may be being bribed. Right. So what are the reasons for why the women are not acceptable? And, and, and Josephus says very explicitly, the, the Greek is gunaikon deme esto martyria, no evidence from a woman or from women. And he says because of two things, their levity and their boldness, <laughs> levity, kufotes in Greek, uh, and, and thrasos, which means overboldness or rashness. And Carrier tries to say, oh, this doesn't mean that their evidence isn't acceptable. It just means that if you let women in a law court, they'll be giggling and laughing and scolding and so on. And that flies in the face of the very careful legal way that Josephus has mm -hmm. laid that out. And what it clearly means is that Josephus regarded, and Jews of his day, regarded women as empty-headed, trivial um, people who couldn't think straight and always liable to jump to rash conclusions mm. and to blurt mm. things out so you couldn't trust them. And at the same time, the other great Jewish writer of the time, Philo, discussing a passage in Genesis and allegorizing it, he says, uh, the female sex is irrational, akin to bestial passions, fear, sorrow, pleasure, and desire, from which ensue incurable weaknesses and indescribable diseases. Um, and now, I have to say, I quoted some of this to my wife last night over <laughs> supper, and, and it, it kept her angry for the whole, the whole of the meal. How, these men, how dare they say? I said, yeah, that's yeah. not the point. I yeah, said, yeah, yeah. the point is, this is what people thought at the time, yes. and yet the Gospels put the women front and center. And there are other uh, passages as well, and Carrier is quite rude about me and other, uh, <laughs> uh, other um, apologists at this point, and says, oh, you don't bother to check your sources. But actually, I refer in the passage in question to a discussion by my friend Richard Borkham in his book Gospel Women where he discusses this issue and he points out a very interesting passage in the book we call Pseudophilo which is like Josephus a summary of biblical history where at one point 
Miriam, the older sister of Moses, has a dream, and in her dream she dreams that her mother is going to give birth to a son who will redeem Israel. And when she tells her parents in the morning, they don't believe her. (laughs) even though it was true, and Pseudo-Philo knows it's true. Um, And and, uh, as Borkham says, this shows this is the normal assumption. And guess what? In the parallel passage when Josephus is describing the birth of Moses, it's Moses' father who has the dream, and he is believed. And so these, it's not so much um, is there a strict law here. It's that the widespread assumption, and so again I say, granted the tradition in 1 Corinthians, if you were going to make up stories later, would you do it like that? And the answer mm-hmm. is absolutely no. Those must be original, very close up to the facts. Well, I have no doubt that Carrier will respond to, uh, to that. <laughs> best of, best and of luck. We'll see how much tennis <laughs> gets going in the process. But um, thank you. Really, really helpful. Um, really interesting to, to hear it explained in, in those terms. Before we rejoin the rest of today's podcast, I have a very special offer for you to help you have an even more meaningful spiritual experience this Easter. As you know, N.T. Wright is without doubt one of the greatest Christian thinkers and apologists of our time. And some of Tom Wright's answers to questions about Jesus' death, resurrection and return are some of the most poignant and thought-provoking. That's why we've created a brand new downloadable devotional resource that's perfect for the Easter season featuring these questions and Tom's answers. This five-day devotional journey titled Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return is only available to friends like you as our thanks for your gift today. And remember, your support is truly critical to help keep resources and podcasts like Ask N.T. Write Anything and Unbelievable going strong because this ministry is completely funded by friends like you. So please give the very best gift you can and make sure to download your copy of Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return devotional at premierinsight.org forward slash NT That's premierinsight.org forward slash NT Thank you. Um, let's go to another question. Um, Lonnie is in Alberta, Canada, and wants to know, why did Jesus allow Thomas to touch him? We all need to rely on our God-given faith, for we don't have the luxury of touching Jesus' wounds in order to believe. So why was it a different case for Thomas? Yeah, it's a good question. And and the that chapter in John chapter 20, um, things happen differently all the way through. Um, you know, Mary Magdalene sees Jesus through her tears, which is very interesting in itself. And then the disciples in the upper room suddenly here he is and then thomas uh, and thomas is grouchy and grumpy and i'm not going to believe <laughs> unless i actually put my finger in the da, 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 da. Mm. and jesus okay go ahead be my guest and actually we're not told that thomas did, did reach yes, out and yes, touch yes. him but the invitation was there and it seems to me that that is a classic example which then resonates out into what apologetics is all about mm. of god meeting people where they are Mm. And Jesus does say, in a kind of a smiling rebuke to Thomas, okay, you've seen so you believe, blessed are those who've not seen and yet believe. Mm. And, and that, that's pretty much the end of John 20, except for the final summary. Um, and I think uh, this is a way of saying we can't 
over-rationalize and say it must all be by faith mm. so it should never have mm. any of mm. this kind of evidence mm. um, and I, I want just gently to challenge Lonnie and to say we don't rely on our God-given faith you don't rely on faith faith is like a window the point of a window is not I love having this bit of glass in the wall of my house mm. it's so that we can see out and so that light mm. can get in faith is trusting not faith doesn't rely on faith faith relies on God yes um, and, and that's really rather important and God is the creator and god is the recreator and god does different things with different people and wants sometimes to assure people that actually this is for real and it's it's like apologetic arguments that 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 they work differently in different contexts it's always interesting to me because the sense i get from from the question here from lonnie is is well at least those first followers had the physical evidence and yeah, and therefore yeah. they were at an advantage but interestingly if you go to something like matthew 28 you know where jesus is mm-hmm, with mm-hmm. them at the end of the the gospel and when they saw him they worshipped him but some, some doubted, doubted. Yes, even yes, even people who yes, were apparently yes. in the presence of jesus and it's remarkable that matthew at that climactic point mm. at the end of his gospel actually puts that in it's as though there's something very mysterious here uh, which we can't, we haven't got the categories for it. It's rather like, you know, in orthodox icons, the perspective works backwards. Mm, mm. Instead of normally you look at a painting and the perspective is doing that away from you, the uh, the icons are doing it, so it's com- to coming you. towards yeah, you. Yeah. And And it's as though the thing we're being asked to think about and believe in the resurrection stories in the Gospels isn't something that we can pick up and put into our mindsets the way we currently are, it says, sorry, you need to put your mindset into this story mm. and it will reshape it. And within that, I think part of the point of Thomas actually touching Jesus is is this is real. Um, as Jesus says in Luke, um, a ghost doesn't have yes. flesh and bones as you see mm-hmm. I have. Um, the, and and, and that, that's, that's so important. New creation is real and it's transformed reality, but it's still reality. We'll uh, we'll try and fit in two more times mm-hmm. against sure. us as always. Never enough time. But um, Mary Marilyn, sorry, in Lakeland, Florida, says hi, Justin and Tom. Really appreciate the show <laughs> and the willingness to take questions. I have a three-in-one question: <laughs> Why does the church celebrate the resurrection of Jesus only once a year at Easter, yet proclaim his death weekly through the sacrament of the Lord's Supper? Paul said Christ is our Passover who was sacrificed. So wasn't he honouring Jesus' death rather than his resurrection on the annual feast? in conjunction with the Lord's Supper. And finally, Marilyn asks, do you know if the daily slash weekly gatherings to break bread mentioned in Luke and Acts and so on were eventually replaced with the Lord's Supper when the church outlawed observance of the Passover and began distancing themselves from their Jewish roots? So there's a few things to try and tie yeah, up. That, that's very interesting. I mean, the, the church celebrates the resurrection of Jesus every Sunday. I mean, it celebrates every day, but, mm. but every Sunday is... A celebration of the resurrection because it creation. is on a sunday because it's on a sunday and it's one of the things i sometimes stop and think about quite remarkable that every sunday since the first day of jesus being raised from the dead christians have celebrated the beginning of the new week the beginning of mm. the new creation that has gone on yes. uh, there's never been a stop mm. and we're still doing it and and it's a great shame when christians think of sunday as oh it's the day you could go to church if you wanted to sort of mm. thing rather than mm. saying no we ought to be celebrating yeah. this is the beginning of, mm. we are sunday people yeah. we are new creation mm. people mm. um uh, and, and of course paul says um as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup you you proclaim 
his death until he comes. But but the proclamation is a matter of doing it announces to the principalities and powers of the world that Jesus has overcome mm. all their evil and that he is the Lord of the world. But the death of Jesus by itself wouldn't say that without the resurrection. Right. So as you discover, if you're a theologian, it's very difficult to say everything all, the, all <laughs> at the same time. You always have to say the death of the one who was then raised right. or the resurrection yeah. of the one who had been crucified. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, b- and when Paul talks about Christ, our Passover being sacrificed. Um, Yes, but Passover is an entire narrative, which is the Paschal Lamb coming out of Egypt, getting the commandments, and then building the tabernacle. It's the entire thing. Mm. And Paul embraces that whole story, and he sees that whole story as a microcosm and invites people to share it. And I would be surprised to be told that the Lord's Supper replaced the bread-breaking when the church outlawed observance of the Passover because you've already got it um, in, in 1 Corinthians um, chapters 10 and 11, mm. references to the the, the, um, the Lord's Supper yes. and using Passover language and using the Passover story mm. in that mm. way about the children of Israel coming out from Egypt. Um, so there's no sense there of Paul distancing himself from his Jewish roots. Mm. Um, it may be that later on, by the 3rd, 4th, 5th centuries, when there was still some puzzlement about, because uh, a lot of Jews did become Christians in, mm. the, in the succeeding mm. centuries, were they still supposed to attend synagogue? And sometimes the church said, no, that's just going to be misleading. You shouldn't do it. And mm. Ignatius says things about that. Chrysostom says things about that. It's obviously an ongoing puzzle, but I don't think it's it's a distancing from Jewish roots. The idea of the Lord's Supper is uh, the Last Supper repeated because Jesus told us to, and that means what it means within the context of the great story of Israel, which is as Jewish as it comes. Final question. Um, Jacob in Oregon oh, yeah. wants to know, how can we portray the resurrection hope in our art, our work? Do you have some examples of people or things that do this? Wow. Mm. And in parentheses, <laughs> says, I'd also appreciate it if you could discuss where the Lord of the Rings does this well and where it doesn't, since I'm pretty familiar with it. But I understand not everyone is. It'd just be a helpful example for me. Thank you very much. I've greatly enjoyed the podcast so far. <laughs> I want to think about the Lord of the Rings. Um, one of my sons is really quite a Tolkien um, uh, expert or anorak, and I might put that to him, but I don't have yes. a good answer for that myself at the moment. I think the Lord of the Rings is about the, the defeat of evil, but you don't see very much of the new life that happens as a result. Well, I suppose um, I've always sort of assumed maybe Tolkien with the, the resurrection of Gandalf, um, who dies and then appears yeah, again perhaps, and, perhaps, and is actually perhaps. dressed in a sort of different sort of yeah, garb okay okay no fair um, enough there's a sort of resurrection motif yeah going m- on maybe there. maybe i need to think about that but i mean in terms of what frodo has to do and getting rid of the ring mm. and the ring being yes. you know and Gollum grabbing it and then falling down yes. into the fiery pit etc um i'm not sure how that would generate there, a, a there, resurrection there is hope. one bit i've seen mm. it quite often quoted in in sermons and things around easter uh, and I, I i don't have it to hand so I'll, I'll probably not not do it justice but it's a bit c.s lewisy like it it's a bit narnia like where oh, um oh. Uh, uh, frodo says something along the lines of or, or sam or someone says um uh has has it all been undone you know when they're back in oh, the shire yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, and yeah, it's yeah. sort of as they're waking up from a bad dream and uh it's it's very much a sort of resurrection um all the evil has been worked backwards again and yes, death has been yes, turned inside yes, out yes. And so on. but the shire is not a happy place when they get back no that's um, true yes. uh, and and i mean there's various things going on there <laughs> now I, I would say um resurrection hope in art 
in, in the early medieval period, they did sometimes paint and even some frescoes you can see in some churches in Italy the Ezekiel 37 scene mm. of the earth writhing and and uh, the bones coming up and and being put back together etc etc it's never a very easy thing to portray and um, there's a famous 20th century painter who I'm just forgetting his name at the moment who did the, the Crookham resurrection scenes which are kind of jokey of here's an ordinary English churchyard mm. and all these people standing up again very ordinary villagers mm. and, and mm. greeting each mm. other mm. as a way of saying is that is that really what it's about mm. and I would want to say um, I, I look at other things I look at the work of some of our great contemporary composers people mm. like James Macmillan or Paul Spicer who I've worked with we, we wrote this Easter oratorio together 20 years ago um, where actually you can feel in the music that something is coming through um, or in Handel's Messiah that wonderful aria which starts part three I know that my redeemer lives it's very interesting that Handel puts that in E major in parallel with comfort ye my people right at the beginning of the aria whereas his great hallelujah chorus is in D major which is kind of a martial thing yeah great we've won the victory mm, terrific mm. isn't that fantastic mm. but then there's something mysterious about E major I know that my redeemer lives, and, and this is this is new. We, we've we've gone up a key, as it were, um, and I think as well. One of the and again, I, I'm quoting friends of mine, but Michal O'Shiel, the Irish poet, uh, O apostrophe S I A D H A I L, pronounced Shiel, mm. Michal O'Shiel. Yes, you're, you're a great fan of his poetry. Well, his yes. new book is called mm. Five Quintets. Mm. You've spoken of this before and, Have and, and okay. recommended it. Well, yes. I want to recommend it again because <laughs> the point of the five quintets is he says in the preface, I always felt that Eliot lacked uh, in the four quartets. Mm. He lacked the sense of a fresh joy out beyond. And Michal gives it us in abundance. Mm. Mm. There's a, a rich celebration mm. of new life, mm. which, is, which is really quite remarkable. Um, but I think as well, there are many, many things that the church does. And again, I've probably quoted some of them before, which are bringing new life to communities. I think mm. of, you know, some of the communities I know in the Northeast that really battered by industrial recession and the shutting down of traditional industries, where the church has got in there and has started new projects for literacy training, for um, working with the homeless, for um, enabling uh, for, for credit unions to enable people whose money is in chaos to, mm -hmm. to, to get going again and so on. And when you see that happening and you see the look on people's faces, you think that this is new life. This yes. is resurrection. Mm. And it isn't the ultimate resurrection, but it's a, a genuine sign and foretaste mm. of it. Mm. So I want to say in every possible way, in art, in music, in poetry, in dance, in drama, and in those many social projects, mm. this is what we should mm. be doing and what in the power of the Spirit we can do. Yes. I had the, the privilege of um, going to see the on-stage dramatization of The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe oh, really? in London yes, yes, recently, yes. over Christmas actually. And uh, again, it brought back to me the power of yeah, that, yeah. that particular way in which Lewis dramatized the, yes, the yes. resurrection um, at the stone table and so on. Um, yes, one of my grandchildren went to see that and came back absolutely. Oh, it's, a, it's, a, it's an extraordinary production. Yes, yes. I don't know if it's still, still running at the moment, right. but um, uh, if you get the chance to see it, I mean, obviously they, they play around sure. with certain elements of it, but I, I think overall very faithful right, to, right, the, right. to the idea of the book. And um, yeah, but there are many, many ways we can, we can obviously evoke the, yes, the resurrection absolutely. story. Absolutely. Lovely. Thank you so much, Tom, for some, you. your time again on this key issue in Christianity. And I hope that if you're listening and uh, you heard something that was helpful, that it's blessed you as well. For the moment, uh, we wish you a very happy Easter <laughs> and we will see you on the other side. Yep. <laughs>